reductionism for me is um, a method, and it's an opportunistic method. Uh, it uh, begins with the assertion that there are higher level regularities and that these are explanatory, but higher level regularities will only be explanatory uh, if they reflect the operation of lower level mechanisms whose interaction with one another produces the higher level phenomena described by these um, higher level regularities. Um, and uh, the in any improvement in the explanatory detail of, at the higher level can only come, I argue, by uh, the reductive process of explaining the higher level regularities in terms of the lower level components and the way they interact with one another. That's the way in which you explain both the success of the higher level explanations and all their exceptions, all the places where they break down. Uh, it's also the only way that you can explain the way in which we can make improvements in the precision and the range or domain of the higher level explanations. So as I said at the beginning, reductionism is a very opportunistic methodology uh, it, does, it is not the claim that explanation always proceeds or that inquiry always proceeds from the bottom up. It hardly ever proceeds from the bottom up. It's almost always top down, but it has to always drill down in order both to vindicate what explanatory insight has been already achieved and to improve on that insight, both in terms of eliminating the exceptions and increasing the precision. Now, I'm an eliminativist, and that means that where the reductionistic research program fails, the proper inference to draw is eliminativism, that the higher level is somehow illusory and somehow uh, described in ways that are fundamentally mistaken and that have to be um, given up in order to actually understand the phenomena. Alex Rosenberg is a professor of philosophy at Duke University, and he's made several very important contributions in many different areas of philosophy. Here, we cover a broad range of topics, including scientism and naturalism, perhaps how the two might differ, and some common objections that are often raised against scientism. So we touch on eliminativism, intentionality, consciousness, mathematics, morality, and we talk a bit about human scholarship. Here is my conversation with Alex Rosenberg. Scientism. Do you mind just for the audience giving a rundown of what scientism is, uh, how you tend to view it? So um, scientism has long been a pejorative term um, defined as the unrealistic and unreasonable um, uh, confidence that science provides and the only correct, true description or approximately true description of the world and everything in it, uh, and the uh, unreasonable confidence that the methods by which science acquires this information about the nature of reality are the only methods that will provide knowledge. And scientism, as I use the term, accepts that definition, except it removes the word unreasonable. Um, so uh, scientism, as I use the word, uh, is a uh, an attempt to take away a stick used to beat my particular view from the opponents, the way gay or um, queer um, is a word taken by those attacked by the word as a uh, uh, a label for their position, which they want to endorse. So scientism, as I use it, is a term that I agree on the meaning of with the, the those who reject scientism, Okay, um, uh, and uh, I simply sustain support and argue in its favor. Over the years, have you do you think that scientism is getting more popular or accepted in mainstream philosophy, or no? But I, uh, there are at least some people who are comfortable with the label. A very small number who publicly endorse it. There might be a larger number who actually. Uh, endorse it, but uh, are unwilling to deal with the obloquy associated with a uh, public endorse endorsing it. And then there are a larger number of people who are sympathetic um, to it, but um, who 
like most philosophers, don't want to take sides on isms. Great. Uh, speaking of isms, uh, so what is, in your view, the difference between being a scientific philosopher and just having a naturalistic commitment, a commitment to naturalism? All right. So um, well, I think that's a great question. Um, naturalism is a, uh, uh, a fairly uh, popular view nowadays. Uh, and I'd say that um, and then scientism is one of the extreme versions of it. I'm not sure whether it's the, the most left-wing or the most right-wing version of naturalism. But by and large, the project of naturalism, uh, especially as articulated by philosophers like Dan Dennett, uh, is to reconcile the scientific point of view with what is known as the manifest image. The manifest image is an expression of Wilfred Sellers um, to describe the common sense uh, uh, obvious um, to the layman uh, description of the natural world and the human agents who uh, occupied and appear to be making a disaster of it. Um, and uh, scientism, might say, is uh, disenchanted naturalism. It's the view that uh, when we try to affect the reconciliation between the manifest image and science, we can't, and that therefore the manifest image has to go. In that sense, are you illinativist about the manifest image, or you can recognize that it exists given the kind of cognitive mechanisms we have, but it's just that we're not going to make it equivalent with science? Yeah, my version of, of scientism or disenchanted naturalism gives priority to metaphysics, that is to say, to the description of reality. Um, and I have to say we're eliminativists about the manifest image. We think that most of the things that people think exist and most of the processes that they think are in operation, in fact, are illusions uh, in the way that John Locke long ago showed us that color is an illusion. Right. And so you, so you endorse scientism not on a pragmatist ground, not that it, it's been successful proving proving all these things over the years, but on strict metaphysical grounds. Yes, absolutely. That's, a, that's another great observation. The pragmatist, I think, um, gives priority to epistemology and is certainly indifferent to metaphysics um, and holds that uh, uh, what we ought to endorse is what works and um, truth is merely the uh, the consensus at the end of inquiry. I think scientism um, is certainly a fellow traveler with pragmatism, but gets off the train because it holds that metaphysics or the scientific explanation of the nature of reality is prior to and explains the success that the pragmatist is willing to be satisfied with. Right. So the actual track record is not the is not the main thing here. It's the actual method itself, and that we can't have a competing method for truth, or a competing criteria for truth that is as attractive. Right. So the 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 track record uh, is phenomenally uh, impressive, and uh, the the scientific philosopher shares with the pragmatist um, the. Uh, endorsement of that of the success of that record but the pragmatist if asked to explain why the record is as stunning as it's been over the last 400 years either shrugs their shoulders or says that's not an interesting question because answering it won't make a further contribution to pragmatic control of our observations and experiences and the scientific says that is a real question that is an important um uh, matter that requires illumination, and the illumination is given by the conclusion that the success of science is explained by means of science, scientific findings. Then is it the case that the scientific philosopher would not make a prescription for the value of holding a scientific view in everyday life? Uh, they would just make a prescription for holding a scientific view insofar as you're concerned with the validity of explanations? Well, I think that the scientific philosophers I describe them 
uh, can't make normative judgments uh, above and beyond the kind of um, instrumental uh, um, practical uh, uh, claims that science endorses. Um, uh, we can uh, endorse the instrumental rationality of being scientistic and explain why it works as well as it does. Uh, but we can't morally enforce scientism on anybody because we hold that there are no grounds for normative judgment, non non instrumental normative judgment. Right. Okay. So now with a uh, rundown of of what scientism looks like, uh, can we talk about some traditional problems that are raised against scientism? Uh, so before we move on to the big math and morality, uh, uh, how about intentionality? Uh, how does a scientific philosopher deal with intentionality? Well, okay, so I'm going to answer these questions by telling you how this scientific philosopher deals with, um, scientific philosopher deals with the problems. And I've been an eliminativist longer than I've been a scientific. I'm using scientific, by the way, as a noun. Um, I can't, you know, the, the substantive form of scientism can't be scientific. Right, because there are lots of people who are scientific and, and reject scientists. So, um, uh, uh, I think there's good good evidence in neuroscience for the illusory character of the claim of intentionality as a statement about the nature of cognitive processes. Um, I think that it's uh, um, naturally extremely counterintuitive. And it requires a great deal of work, so to speak, to get people to see why you want to be uh, an eliminativist and how you can reconcile eliminativism with our language and our uh, uh, agency descriptions of our own actions and other people's actions. But I've tried to do that in a number of non-popular venues, academic papers that the the popular exposition of um, the denial of intentionality that I've tried to advance uh, has, I think, not met with a great deal of success. It gets what David Lewis used to call the incredulous stare. Yeah. Um, I know you're probably tired of answering this question a million times because it's it's a bit frustrating, but I have to ask about the, you know, the classic objection to relativism is that, um, well, if you're asserting an intentional claim, then in that, do you, do you prove the validity of intentional claim? Um, I, I don't, I don't endorse this. I can see the silliness in it, but, uh, just for the benefit of the audience, would you mind responding to that? That's the, you know, the, the, the famous self-refuting, um, uh, argument against eliminativism. The eliminativist, uh, wants you to share his belief that there are no beliefs and undertakes actions in order to get you to do so. Um, if the Olympiadist describes what he's doing that way, it looks like a patent contradiction. I believe that there are no beliefs. I believe that there are no desires, and I desire to get you to share my my belief, right? Um, so uh, I've actually just published a paper on, uh, on this subject, um, and I'd be happy to send it to any of your listeners or viewers who um, uh, are interested, uh, the title is How to Be an Eliminativist. And the last part of the paper directly responds to the self-proceeding um, uh, counter-arguments to eliminativism, uh, particularly in the hands of people like Bogosian and the late lamented Lynn Rutter Baker. Um, I don't think that this argument should give us much pause um, for a very deep philosophical reason. And the reason has to do with the fact that we don't yet have a coherent account of truth. And until we have a coherent account of truth, nobody's going to be able to use truth as a stick with which to beat a limit. Right. Right. That's fair enough. Right. Okay. Uh, what about what about consciousness or views on consciousness? I think there's a lot of interesting work that's been done by cognitive neuroscientists on consciousness. Uh, I'm something of a fan of Barr's attention theory, of central workplace attention theory, and I am very um, taken with the work of Graziano uh, on the social self and the way in which we construct our own conception 
And here you have to translate everything I'm saying into eliminativist terminology uh, of the of conscious experience. Um, I certainly, and I don't think any scientist should deny the existence of qualia uh, and of the qualitative character of introspective experience. Um, but we certainly dissent from almost all of the descriptions of introspective experience that take its intentional character seriously as indicating that the brain represents in any way. Uh, but getting back to consciousness, um, consciousness must and probably does have a good evolutionary explanation because it's too large a part of our uh, lives uh, not to have. Um, Yablonka and her co-author have written a big fat book about the evolution of consciousness. That seems to me um, extremely interesting and worth careful study. Um, but I don't think anything that she says in it should be incompatible with either eliminativism or scientism. Um, uh, it's probably the case that consciousness is in fact the, a package of a number of different um, uh, activities or capacities, each one of which has been selected for and selected for in the presence of selection for other components of the package. Um, but at this point, we're really speculating, and um, the, the eliminativist and the, self, the scientific philosopher like, wants to treat consciousness as a, a problem on the table for cognitive neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, just as an aside, uh, because we brought up the evolutionary component, uh, you don't see purpose in, in biological functions, right? Uh, just touch on philosophy of biology. I, well, I think that Darwin eliminated purposes from the universe. You know, uh, uh, Newton eliminated purposes from the physical universe, and that left only what Kant said uh, was the domain of the blade of grass, and there will never be a Newton for the blade of grass. And the Newton for the blade of grass was born in Shropshire 20 years after, Dar after Kant made this claim about there will never be a Newton for the blade of grass. And that's Darwin. Darwin expunged purpose from the biological domain. And in doing so, I think he wrote out the marching orders for expunging it from the psychological domain too, because the psychological domain is just part of the biological domain. Now, again, this is a view that is uh, not widely popular in the philosophy of biology. Everybody thinks, most people think that the selected effects view or the causal role view somehow naturalize purpose or function and make it safe for natural science. Um, uh, I think that can't be right. I think that um, uh, we can certainly talk the talk of you know uh, design problem and um, uh, natural selection, but these are metaphors that we need consciously to understand are um, potentially very misleading since there's nothing out there in nature that constitutes purpose or design. So, so um, take selected effects theory in in particular, uh, seeing purposes as naturalized. Um, like the whole view, just to sum it up for the audience, is that Darwin didn't dispel purpose but naturalized it. And then we can think of them as goal, goals. Um, and there's lots of different methods for how people approach that. With selected effects theory in particular, because that seems to be a popular one, where do you see the substantive problem to be in that approach? Uh, I am an exponent of selected of the selected effects theory account of the nature of biological function, um, and um, what I think is that biologists are cer certainly free to, and in fact, will find indispensable the language of function. Right, um, but that a, a, a full and complete understanding of the cognitive implications or the uh, the epistemic implications of their use of that language is they're really just talking about blind variation and natural selection, and blind variation and natural selection do not constitute or underwrite real purpose or any kind of purpose, real or non-real. Right. Right. 
Um, okay, so getting back to consciousness, you mentioned global workspace theory. Uh, are you enticed by any of the other mechanistic reductionist theories of consciousness, IIT? Uh, I think that IIT hasn't um, panned out uh, in terms of, of uh, the detailed um, vindication of a research program that it could generate. Um, so in that respect, I think it's um, not as attractive as uh, global workplace theory. Um, I, I suspect that some of the advantages of IIT can not with much difficulty be incorporated into a broader um, workspace theory. But here I'm uh, very much an amateur consumer and observer looking at what's going on in, in this domain of cognitive neuroscience. From the point of view of philosophers, do you think we've complicated the problem a little bit by sort of giving too much emphasis to the experience of what it's like? Um, and that sort of puts people off from accepting mechanistic explanations of consciousness? I don't know. Um, I don't think that it's our fault, uh, the emphasis on the one it's like aspect of consciousness. I think this is what everybody reaches for uh, when they begin, when people just begin, laymen begin to think about consciousness in, in any way. They think about their own case and what it's like to be them. Um, uh, it's certainly clear that any proposal advanced in cognitive neuroscience or philosophy of uh, psychology uh, for producing a reductive account of the nature of consciousness will immediately be met with the what it's like uh, response. Unless you can tell me what it's like, you have you've failed in your objective. And that's probably too high a standard. Right, but you're not frightened by that standard. That um, you can imagine both a scientific explanation and that 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 is not in conflict with the fact that. Well, let's say I would hope that I would hope so. But whether it can be done or not is um, nothing that I have the resources to own, uh, uh, decide on. That's true. We can't speculate too far. Okay, so talking about reductionism in particular, uh, so you've, you've long since endorsed a reductionist view. Do you mind just um, describing that a little bit? Reductionism for me is um, a method, and it's an opportunistic method. Uh, it uh, begins with the assertion that there are higher level regularities and that these are explanatory, but higher level regularities will only be explanatory uh, if they reflect the operation of lower-level mechanisms whose interaction with one another produces the higher-level phenomena described by these um, higher-level regularities. Um, and uh, the in, any improvement in the explanatory detail of, at the higher level can only come, I argue, by uh, the reductive process of explaining the higher level regularities in terms of the lower level components and the way they interact with one another. That's the way in which you explain both the success of the higher level explanations and all their exceptions, all the places where they break down. Uh, it's also the only way that you can explain the way in which we can make improvements in the precision and the range or domain of the higher level explanations. So as I said at the beginning, Reductionism is a very opportunistic methodology. Uh, it, uh, it is not the claim that explanation always proceeds or that inquiry always proceeds from the bottom up. It hardly ever proceeds from the bottom up. It's almost always top down, but it has to always drill down in order both to vindicate what explanatory insight has been already achieved and to improve on that insight, both in terms of eliminating the exceptions and increasing the precision. Now, I'm an eliminativist, and that means that where the reductionistic research program fails, the proper inference to draw is eliminativism, that the higher level is somehow illusory and somehow uh, described in ways that are fundamentally mistaken and that have to be um, given up 
in order to actually understand the phenomena. So, you know, <clears throat> take the Ptolemaic uh, system. Um, that's, a, that's an astronomical system that you would not ask to be reduced to the Copernican or Keplerian um, system, uh, which explains both when it gets things right and when and where and why it gets things wrong and how it can't be enhanced in its precision beyond a certain level of detail. Um, so reductionism and eliminativism, they're in tension with one another. To take up the 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 objection from emergence, uh, from different emergent levels and th them having their own causal roles, it seems to me there's two ways people put it. One is that uh, that they're just there genuinely is causation at a higher level that can't be reduced to a lower level. And then another way people put it is that although it can be reduced to a lower level mechanism, but um, there's no utility in doing that. So if you're studying some part of psychology, the operational value to us as humans is staying at that level. Um, how do you respond to those kinds of views? Uh, so maybe maybe first the maybe first just the second argument which just says that, there's utility for us humans staying at some level, and then specialized sciences have their own value for that reason. Right. So uh, I think this is a, uh, this sort of a, a intentional stance kind of approach um, is natural and attractive, uh, but it's fundamentally a matter of pragmatism, right? It says there are lots of different uh, theoretical handles depending on your interest and objective that you can use. Uh, and each of them is perfectly adequate in its own domain. But there's no fact of the matter about which of them is right or why any of them work. They just do work. And I think that's a very unsatisfactory or unsatisfying state of affairs, especially to the scientific philosopher who wants a unified explanation of everything. Um, uh, so uh, uh, it might well be the case, and I'm sure it is the case in for working scientists that uh, models at higher levels are all they need for their immediate purposes, um, and scientism is certainly not going to deprive them of the tools that they employ in advancing their own domains. Uh, but I think philosophers can't be satisfied with those stopping points. Um, even the arch uh, the defender of uh, the intentional stance, Dan Dennett's written this wonderful and durable paper called Real Patterns, in which he tries to insist that, um, while well, he tries to have his cake and eat it too, tell us um, that the intentional stance is a stance, and yet, on the other hand, it reflects real patterns in cognitive uh, processes. And, and then what about the more substantive objection, which, which says there genuinely is a level of causality at a higher level that can't ever be ontologically, metaphysically reduced to a lower level. So neither the reductionist nor the eliminativist can accept um, downward causation or autonomous causation at higher levels for obvious reasons. And, and uh, I guess my favorite simple argument here is uh, Jay Guan Kim's uh, explanatory exclusion argument. If you're a physicalist and you think that, say, cognitive processes are a matter of uh, uh, of neural circuitry, then you're either going to find yourself, like many uh, physicalists and reductionists, attributing call autonomous causal force to the psychological and the intentional and denying its reducibility while still insisting it's nothing but physical. And that seems to me to be a uh, completely unstable, non-equilibrium. Aside from intentionality, because that's a whole can of worms, have there been any challenges that 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 have been relevant here? So the stuff in ecological psychology or cognitive science sometimes claims causality like that. Um, I know you're not convinced, but have there been any areas that have been well, the, uh, particular relevance? None. And uh, um, I tried hard to follow <clears throat> attempts to reconcile upper level up ups. Um, upper level causation and downward causation with uh, physicalism that mechanists like Bechtel and Craver uh, have uh, elaborated. Um, this idea of distinguishing causation and constitution seems to me a uh, not implausible way of 
um, trying to save upper level causation. Well, although it certainly doesn't save down downward causation, you've still got the Kim um, uh, exclusion arguments. Uh, but I haven't seen uh, any uh, real need yet for philosophers to come to the aid of cognitive scientists who want to insist on autonomous higher level causation. I think um, um, dynamic systems theories uh, in psychology, um, they have a very limited range of models of a predictive explanatory power, and nobody could, I think, seriously advance them as counterexamples to physicalist reductionism. Yeah, that's true. Dynamical systems theory is totally compatible, or in the way that it's applied, is totally compatible with these views. Um, uh, uh, just as a question from totally from left field, <laughs> if you'll have it, uh, can I ask you about your views on multiple realizability? Do I think multiple realizability obtains in the natural world? The answer is yes. And all you have to do is look at nucleic acids uh, and um, the functional characterization of the nucleic acids in terms of genes. Um, however, that's, um, how can I put it, that, that observation is modulo my commitment to eliminativism. Um, talk about genes seems to me to be instrumentally permissible, even though as an eliminativist, I hold that there are no such things as genes. That is to say that gene is not a natural kind and that the, the, the causal units in heredity and genetics and developmental control are sequences of nucleic acids. Um, so it's uh, very convenient to, be, to, to commit yourself to multiple realizability in molecular biology and for many purposes in our understanding of how biology proceeds, that seems to me an important insight. Okay, but in the long run, uh, how seriously do we want to take it? Um, well, it looks to me like in molecular biology, there's less and less talk about genes. There's more and more talk about uh, um, regulatory and structural, cis and trans, um, uh, um, um, uh, SNPs and uh, other ways of configuring the genetic material for study. And what is this telling us about the concept of gene? Well, that is going the way of other concepts that have uh, lived a useful life and eventually been super slow. Um, and why? Well, because at some point or other, multiple realizability gave way to eliminativism. So, what about the argument for using MRT as a as an argument for a functionalist view of mind? It's fine uh, if you are prepared to treat the functionalist view of the mind as a heuristically useful instrument. Okay, as a model uh, that may help us control and manipulate and intervene successfully um, in all. Uh, uh, working with minds, uh, but uh, is that a uh, a long-term stable position in cognitive science? I don't think so. Right, because the challenge is always how how close attention do you pay to the actual biology rather than viewing the mind as a purely information processing system? Right. Well, you start out with a model. The model is multiply realizable. The model needs to be improved. Okay. How are the what kind of improvements? Well, exceptions to the way in which the model works need to be accounted for, and the precision with which the model systematizes data needs to be improved. In undertaking either of those two tasks, we eventually find ourselves replacing the model with a more a precise and more general and generally more fundamental model, model that operates in terms of the components which the original model simply helped itself to without identifying and showing the causal interactions among. Right, right, right. Yeah, and as you point out, the 
details of that project are questions that are on the table for science itself. It's always true. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've gotten the easy questions out of the way, uh, how about how about math? Uh, math is mathematics is always raised as the big objection for naturalism. So it's true that um, ever since Plato, we've been attracted by we philosophers have been attracted by realism with regard to mathematics, oh. and the the problem of the nature of mathematical truth the nature of mathematical objects and our knowledge of these truths seems to me the biggest problem on the table in epistemology uh, and in uh, uh, metaphysics as well. We've got really great accounts of, of the nature and sources of our knowledge in every other area of uh, um, human inquiry. And yet here we have a wonderfully successful domain of ever-expanding knowledge uh, that we have the gravest trouble linking up with the rest of our epistemology and metaphysics. Um, and um, I'd like nominalism to be right or fictionalism to be right, um, but uh, I don't at this point have a clear handle on how they could be. Um, and I take it that this is a problem not just for scientism or eliminativism, it's a problem for all naturalistic um, metaphysical and epistemological views, right? We're all in the same boat when it comes to math. Um, um, uh, nobody's got a good handle on, on subject. Now, that's, a, that's not a two-quote way. That's not a, a way of saying, you know, uh, you're views are just as bad as mine, it's an admission of what is the major agenda in the philosophy of mathematics and the spillover from that to epistemology and metaphysics. Right. Did, um, what do you make of constructivism, intuitionist mathematics, do you see any hope for, any hope there? Well, I'm not a specialist in the philosophy of mathematics. Um, the philosophy of mathematics is one of the most difficult parts of our discipline and one that I think requires uh, you to pay your dues by way of understanding a lot of mathematics beyond, uh, say, multivariable calculus, um, uh, which is child's play compared to a lot of mathematics. Um, so uh, I think it's it's not even worthwhile listening to what my opinion about constructivism and intuitionism might be. But I'm inclined to think that, you know, it would be great if they were right, uh, but they're more no less no more likely to be right than various other pragmatic views about um uh uh about scientific knowledge. Okay. Um uh, the intuitionist views are as easily open to self-refutation charges as my eliminativism is open to self-refutation charges. And notice both of both constructivism, intuitionism, in math, and eliminativism, uh, they both, like everybody else, need an account of truth that makes them coherent. Okay, but it's going to turn out that everybody needs an account of truth that's going to make any claims that we have knowledge of truths coherent yeah that's fair enough fair enough um okay so the big one morals that's no i think math is the big one i'm not told by i'm not told by the, the problem of morality at all now tell us what the problem is and i'll i'll explain why i'm not told by it. perhaps i should say the popular one uh morals uh, so the 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 trouble with normative uh, thinking that there is an intrinsic objective basis for the for morality that we should look to philosophy for, and if we're posing uh, the kinds of views that we put forward here, then we might not see that basis. Um, and what does that have to say about about how we conceptualize morality? Well, nothing's more obvious than that there's a persistent disagreement about normative ethics since humans began to to utter uh, 
imprecations against one another's contract, right? So um, the fact that there's no, never been any agreement demands explanation. That's the first duty of metaethics to explain normative disagreement. Um, and uh, if you're a scientific philosopher, you appreciate that the only possible explanations that there could be offered for the truth of any normative claim are going to be those provided by science. But we already know independently from Hume and G. E. Moore that any description of the nature of reality, anything that science can tell us, was completely irrelevant to the grounding of ethical claims. You can't derive what's from this is. Well, if you can't derive what's from this is and there are nothing but this is, then you can't derive what's from anything at all. And that leads to nihilism. Um, and the scientific philosopher has to endorse nihilism. By nihilism, I mean the claim that there are no true, correct, right, uh, um, uh, moral claims, that um, uh, nothing is forbidden, everything is, uh, and nothing is permitted either. Um, uh, uh, still less required. Um, so, uh, of course, this is a highly counterintuitive and socially threatening doctrine, and for that reason, almost everybody wants to reject it and any train that it came in on, <laughs> any uh, any uh, philosophical theory that is wedded to nihilism. Um, well, I try to take the sting out of that by pointing out that um, the Darwinian process that got us from the bottom of the food chain on the African savannas about a half a million or a million years ago, in no time at all, that got us to the top of that food chain involves our forging uh, norms of cooperation and collaboration among one another, which have been so strongly selected for as to inform all of our uh, normative thinking. And uh, so most of us, except for on the extreme end of the bell-shaped curve, the sociopaths, and on the other end of the bell-shaped curve, the Mother Teresa's, most of us are well worth trusting as cooperative uh, agents who understand how to live in a human society uh, and that the problems that um, uh, are threatened uh, by those who warn us off nihilism probably or almost certainly uh, needn't detain us. I mean, every so often in human history, you get monsters, whether it's Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or Alexander the Great. Um, uh, fortunately, they're few and far between, uh, and they can't trick everybody forever. Um, so uh, uh, I think nihilism about the uh, fundamental ground of ethical value is perfectly consistent with um, that acknowledging and endorsing uh, as uh, uh, socially indispensable the moral norms that characterize uh, most human societies. I, I like the term nice nihilism to, to uh, take a chapter title from your book. Um, I think it's a good way of describing it. Right. Um, and uh, the the more we explore the nature of morality, uh, especially from a evolutionary point of view, the more we understand um, the, the way in which it actually constrains our behaviors, uh, uh, it, that are it, the way in which it advantageously constrains our advantageously to ourselves. And it's sometimes frustrating that for some reason, people don't take that as seriously. Uh, when you tell people that there is an evolution, evolutionary story for the reason that we have the kind of moral intuitions that we have now, that seems flimsy to people more so than the the supposition of an intrinsic basic basis for morality. But it's no more flimsy. I mean, we still have it. It, it was determined. For the same reason that people need religion, say, and indeed they may need... Um, um, normative morality that has a supernatural um, substructure. Right, right, right. Okay, so we've, we've talked a lot about how 
uh, talked about Sellers' manifest image at the beginning and how uh, we can't have a reconciliation. But in spite of everything we've talked about, how do you view the view, the utility of the humanist scholarships, the humanist scholarship of humanist pursuits? Do you think they they add value? What? So, what do you mean by the humanist scholarship? Do you mean um, the the humanities in general and the interpretive humanities in particular and the interpretive social sciences? That's right. That's right. Well, I view them as entertainment. I mean, we enjoy them. We uh, take pleasure and satisfaction from them. We reward that is to hold our attention in the delivery of the humanities. Um, but in my view, we want to think about them not as um, uh, intellectual disciplines, but as forms of art. Right. but And that shouldn't be a pejorative term, right? That Well, I mean... Uh, unless unless you're against art, right? We we all all of us, you know, we've got many streaming services on our TV. TV is offering us entertainment that uh, is um, uh, deeply satisfying in some cases and trivial and uh, uh, um, uh, deplorable in others. And I think that we ought to understand literary criticism or. Um, uh, history and biography, or the other uh, uh, belles lettres, uh, in exactly the same way. It's interesting you include history in that category. Um, did you mind expanding on that? So history, at least, is seen. Oh, I don't know if it's seen, but sometimes it, there's at least an assumption that um, there's a little objectivity in history that it's giving an account of the past that's reliable. So history is certainly uh, uh, reliable in its dating of events. Humanism came before the French Revolution, right? Uh, the dots, the dots of history uh, are ones that we can establish the occurrence of and the chronology of with great confidence. But connecting those dots, which is what history is supposed to do, and connecting them in explanatory ways um, uh, is almost always uh, intellectually fatuous, is almost always mistaken. And the reason it's almost always mistaken is it relies indispensably on intentional discourse, on intentionality, on taking seriously people's beliefs and desires. And if as you're an eliminatorist, you know that there are no beliefs and desires and that appeal to them never has real explanatory value, then you come to the conclusion that history never gets things right. Um, that history tells stories and the stories are savage psychologically satisfying, they scratch the itch of curiosity, but they don't tell us the real why of what happened in the past. And I've written a whole other book about this in science, you know, sort of I expanded one chapter of the Atheist Guide to Reality uh, uh, to a book called uh, How History Gets Things Wrong, the, uh, the, the Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. And if you excuse me a minute, I'll open up a copy of this book because it has the funniest cover that you've ever seen. Oh, you can't get it in focus, but right. So, so it's uh, Napoleon crossing the Alps in the painting by Dottie, only it's upside down. And uh, my uh, um, designer at MIT Press produced this fantastically humorous cover that, you know, uh, in, in in a nutshell, explains why I hold that history, um, although it can identify the dots, can't ever connect them because of its uh, uh, employment of stories, stories that involve agents engaged in motivated uh, behavior that can be described in the plot of a novel or a play or um, a, a film. Um, we're addicted to stories for reasons that have to do with the forces that addicted us to our uh, common morality, the nice nihilism uh, thing. We're also addicted to the intentional stance because of its role in human relations and in storytelling, right? 
and the storytelling all has its origins, uh, both phylogenetically and in terms of our own brains, in the theory of mind that we carry around to interact with other people, and which we know in the case of certain mental disorders, it becomes uh, damaged and doesn't function well. That's a long sort of connection between history and all the way to the beginning of our talk today, the liminalism. And perhaps also the expressive value of, of art, right? That um, you're expressing your thoughts and feelings through ideas is just a far different experience from expressing in art. Right. And in fact, uh, in the book, I argue that a great deal of harm and damage to the human project has been done by taking history seriously, especially up, up among peoples who find themselves in conflict with one another and appeal to long dead history to justify the wrongs which they wish to perpetrate now on the other party, whether it's the, 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 the parties to the conflict in Belfast uh, in the Troubles, or the Israelis and the Palestinians over the last 75 years, or the Indians and the Pakistanis, or the uh, the incipient nation states of the Balkans at the beginning of the 19th century. We can go all the way back through human history, identifying the nefarious, harmful impact of storytelling. Right, right. I read, I read somewhere, I'm sorry, I'm not totally familiar with this argument, but I read about how, how about the views that we put forward here, uh, you think lead to lead to taking the leftist politics more seriously than, than politics on the right. Um, which I'm excited about. Do you, would you mind expanding on that, if I'm remembering it correctly? Well, it's certainly the case that, it, that if you hold my view of you, you, you deny that there's any moral moral status to the nation state, and uh, you're certainly going to be um, neutral as between competing ethnic identities, uh, and you're not even going to take identity, except numerical identities, uh, seriously, uh, either as a, as the basis for moral uh, um, compass or uh, um, an understanding of, say, political uh, institutions, okay? Um, and uh, you're going to recognize that patriotism was the last refuge of a scoundrel. Um, so in that sense, if, uh, if internationalist and... Um, uh, non-ethnic uh, values are comfortable to the more comfortable to the, to the scientific and to the left. Uh, naturally, that's going to make uh, bedfellows of them or fellow travelers. I think that's a very great place to end off. Uh, unless you have something else you'd like to sound off on. No, just thanks for asking all these penetrating questions. Um, uh, Nobody should take anything I've said in answer to your questions as anything more than an invitation to dig down uh, beyond the surface that we've just scratched today.